When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to CLE Rocks, the music podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. Now, on with the show. I used to say, I wish people knew I could sing. In the early days, people always said, dancer, Tina Turner. They never said singer. I swear to you, if you pull out all of the old reviews from the past, it was always dancer. And I thought, I wish the people knew I could sing. Well, I got my wish. Before she ever became a solo star, Tina Turner was already a legend. During her 16-year career with rock and roll pioneer and husband Ike Turner, Tina was the standout in one of the greatest live acts in music history, with iconic songs like River Deep, Mountain High, A Fool in Love, and a cover of Creedence Clearwater Revival's Proud Mary. Left a good job in the city Working for the man every night and day And I never lost one minute of sleep And I was worried about the way the thing might have been By the late 1970s, none of that mattered. Now on her own, Turner was relegated to low-key television appearances and cabaret shows in Las Vegas. Down but not out, Turner would embark on the greatest comeback story in music history in the 1980s. This is the story of an album and a tour that brought joy to millions and resurrected the queen of rock and roll. For much of their time together, Tina Turner would suffer a tremendous amount of abuse both physical and emotional, at the hands of Ike. Documented in both the 1993 film What's Love Got to Do With It and the autobiography I, Tina. Tina would fully part ways with Ike when their divorce was finalized in 1978. Tina asked for nothing in the form of assets, money, or music royalties. But she did demand one thing, her stage name, Tina Turner. Live Nation's Senior Vice President of Marketing and Sponsorship Sales, Barry Gable, says it was a case of an artist believing in their future when no one else did. When she did go to court and she said, I don't want anything from Ike. All I want is my name. Because she knew she, she bet on herself. While nobody else may have bet on her and maybe nobody else saw her more than just a niche Las Vegas act with the right handlers and the right songs, she would be a superstar. That comeback would begin in, of all places, Las Vegas, where Turner headlined cabaret shows at Caesars Palace. Say what you want, but I'm here to stay cause I'm a mean old liar. Turner would take her show on the road to smaller venues, but her first two albums, 1978's Rough and 1979's Love Explosion, failed to chart. It wasn't until a cover of Al Green's Let's Stay Together in 1983 
that Turner earned enough confidence from her label Capitol Records to record a new album. Photographer Janet McCoska remembers the resulting album, Private Dancer, as the moment Turner took control. Capitol Records took it on and meaning took on the, the, the new Tina and who that was going to be, which is, I think, more, more pop and rock. She wanted to be a rock singer. So they knew they'd have to uh, find a way to introduce all music fans to that side of her. And then the music, just the, the, the songs on Private Dancer, I think I read there were seven or eight number one hits or at least hits. And that's, you don't get that. That's, that's like impossible. It doesn't happen. But she happened to, to hit that time in music where she could get the airplay. She could get the airplay like across the board. Well, probably not on country, but she could get the airplay. She could do MTV. And her image... For me, I, I mean, I, I grew up watching her on different shows with Ike, and she was always a powerhouse. I mean, you know, but finally kind of set free to be her own person and her own powerhouse and, and leading. I found it really cool to have her on stage with the banner in a, in, a, in a studio rehearsing them, and she knew every note she wanted at any time and what she wanted from the ladies in you know background and rehearsing the dancing and just just had no problem with running the show i mean i love that i love that after being dominated by ike for so long for her to to be able to to take charge of the situation and envision what she wanted her, her life to be you know, she didn't want to do those those Vegas shows that she'd been doing for years because that paid the bills. She wanted to be like in front of a stadium full of people, and and when you see that finally happen, that's so satisfying for her. I mean, you 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 just are so thrilled for her that it all came true. Tina Turner was finally set up for success as a solo artist, but the song that would finally make her a star wasn't initially a favorite of Turner herself, recalls Gable. The song that, you know, busted it open for a private, excuse me, what's love got to do with it, she didn't particularly care for. You know, they said, well, just listen to it and make it your own. And the, between the producer and Roger Davis, her manager, they let her do her thing. And she owned that song. It was, I forget who actually recorded the song, but it was a European minor hit, maybe. Um, and it just, he just owned that song. I don't think anybody would ever think that it was done prior to, to, um, to Tina. Must understand the touch of your hand makes my folks react. That it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl opposites attract. It's physical. Turner would eventually come around, issuing What's Love Got to Do With It as the second single from Private Dancer in May 1984. 
Two weeks after the song's release, Turner would join Lionel Richie as the opening act on his Can't Slow Down tour, which arrived at Blossom Music Center that June. To me, she was always one of the hardest working people in show business monikers. And she was given that short period of time to play, and she slayed everybody. So at that time, she made an impact. She was like the perfect um, set up for Lionel because she was incredibly high energy. She just did the six, seven, eight songs, whatever she did uh, for the opening act, and people were just so psyched to see Tina. Turner's opening set lasted just 40 minutes, but the setup of opening for Richie, then a megastar, served as an amazing introduction of Turner to an audience that hadn't heard much from her since her days with Ike, recalls McCoska. It was a great intro for her. She did 40 minutes, and then she came back on and did two songs with Lionel. But it is a great intro for for a person who is trying to is trying to find their new voice. And I guess she said, you know, I don't know what they're going to make of me because I'm not Lionel's audience isn't going to like me. Well, they loved her. And she got to introduce the material from Private Dancer, a couple songs. And um, it was a great lead-in for, for the tour that she finally did. Turner's tour with Richie would wrap up in July 1984. By that September, she had achieved the superstar status she always coveted as a solo artist. What's Love Got to Do With It reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. The singles Better Be Good To Me and Private Dancer would also enter the top 10. What's Love Got to Do With It would go on to win Record and Song of the Year at the 27th Annual Grammy Awards in February 1985. And the Record of the Year is... Oh, I'm so excited. Does that make you nervous? Okay, okay. What's Love Got to Do With It? Needless to say... Tina Turner was no longer an opening act, and yet the media continued to focus on her former partnership with Ike. Outlets would ask questions about their relationship and where it stood in the midst of Turner's rise to solo fame, as documented by Daniel Lindsay, co-director of the 2021 HBO documentary, Tina. Like what I think we're pointing out in the film is like sometimes she'd sit down for like, let's talk about your new album. And it's like 2000. Right. And like in the middle of talking about her new album, somebody's like, what's it like? You know, what was the and she's just like not prepared for that. And it's and that's what's so I think off putting for her is that and what we were trying to get across in the film is like her identity got so attached to this one thing that it's like no matter what she was trying to do, that's all people wanted to talk about. But Turner continued to persevere. Just a week before her Grammy wins, Tina Turner embarked on the massive Private Dancer Tour, which would take her from Europe to North America, Australia, and Asia. private dancer tour would bring Turner to the Midwest that August for shows in Columbus, Toledo, Cincinnati, and of course, Richfield Coliseum. A year after opening for Lionel Richie at Blossom Music Center, Turner was now headlining Northeast Ohio's premier music venue. 
and Gable got to see her twice. There was sweat dripping off her. You know, you didn't see that from female performers. You know, she was, she literally taught Jagger. You know, so just think about that persona on a, on a woman that, you know, held that audience and the stage captive for that two-hour time period. Um, there was really no female artist that, in my mind, had ever done that before. Yeah, there were really good performers, female artists, and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure that I could name a million of those artists that ripped it up when they were on stage, like a Patti Smith, or you go down the whole list, you know, but she was not subdued. And while it seemed very raw, I'm certain that what she did was very calculated and controlled based on the years of being a performer at that club level and having to own that, you know, own the stage and bring the audience along for that ride. And all those songs that she did, not only from, you know, the Al Green song, Let's Stay Together, or, um, you know, going back to Nutbush City Limits, she brought it all and made every song her own. And I think that's what the audience loved about Tina, that she gave it her all. Tina Turner was 45 years old when she began the private dancer tour, yet her energy was mesmerizing. She would run from each end of the stage to rile up the crowd. Sweat dripped down her face, but never altered her huge smile. Her legs rarely stopped moving. Her big hair confronted the wind. And then that voice, a massive force of nature. Costco would shoot the early portion of Turner's set at Richfield Coliseum on August 22, 1985, before taking a seat nearby to watch the rest of the show as a fan. It was glorious. I mean, as, as, as a fan and photographer, you just you go out there and she's just a dynamo. She's just, she's just shooting out energy the way Springsteen would shoot out energy or Mick Jagger. She has, she's, and she can dance and just loved the show top to bottom. Just watched this woman take charge of 20,000 people. And, you know, just, just, she just was an amazing performer. She was so in the moment and sharing all of herself with her, with her people because she trusted possibly more than anybody else, that her audience would take care of her, you know? I mean, what an amazing thing. It's like one of those um, trust falls where you have to trust that somebody's going to catch you. Well, her audience would always catch her. The private dancer tour would go on to net $40 million and earn Polestar's Comeback of the Year award. Two years later, Turner would up the ante with the Break Every Rule tour, a record-setting run that would become the seventh highest-grossing tour of the 1980s. Turner had become a singular talent in pop music, says Tina co-director T.J. Martin. It's not that she was just gifted. It was wholly, she created her own space. She was wholly unique in terms of uh, her, her vocal technique, her vocal prowess, her dancing skills, but also, like, her that's choreographed, like, the choreography behind that. 
Um, and those, and, and kind of the more we dove in, the more we realized there's no one else really that occupies that space in music history that Tina does. Tina Turner would remain one of the biggest touring acts in the world for two more decades before retiring from performing in 2009 following her 50th anniversary tour. As HBO's Tina documentary attests, Turner, who now lives in Switzerland, has removed herself from public life. You get the sense from being around her that she wants to retire not only from the stage, but from being the persona of Tina Turner, right? And wants to just, like, she's perfectly happy at her house, like, gardening like as strange as that sounds to think of Tina Turner like <laughs> gardening or like decorating her house or going out to dinner with their friends in Zurich and like she's just I think she is at that stage in her life where she's not interested in public life. But the memories of those epic performances remain as does Turner's incomparable legacy as simply the best. My wildest dreams is all now. It's my life has changed and everything is good. I'm surrounded by a wonderful energy of people. It's a lot of love around me. So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's something very hard to reach. So it would be something that would, would have been considered years ago. That's the wildest dream. That's impossible to have such a, such a life. Thank you for listening to CLE Rocks. For more episodes, check out our page on ACAST. A special thanks to Barry Gable, Janet McCoska, and the directors of Tina. I'm Troy L. Smith. Until next time. <laughs>